I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I want us to look together there at a marvelous text we started last week, and I managed to get through one verse. I hope to get through a few more than that today. But we're going to look in Ephesians chapter 4, and it really is about what is a church to be. As I shared last Sunday, you're in the process of finding a new pastor. I'm going to retire in a few months, and when that happens, a new pastor is going to come. And so often you say, here's what I'm hoping our new pastor will be like, and uh, what you don't understand is when the new pastor is interviewed, he's saying, well, here's the kind of church I'm looking for. And so it'd be good to see what is God's model, what is God's expectation for a church. It's not ultimately what a pastor wants for a church or a search team does to represent a church. It's what God wants for his church. And so if you'll look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, I read last week the background text. I want to do that again because my hope today is to get through verse 14 as we look beginning 7 to 14. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, and I urge you. Here's an old man saying, listen to me, I'm begging you to do something. But please don't brush over that word. Can, can you see a senior adult in your mind saying, can, can you please do something for me? Have you ever said no to a senior adult asking you for a favor? I don't think so. Paul said, I urge you. I, I'm an old man now, and I don't know that I'll get back to see you, so I want to urge you to walk worthy. Walk worthy of the calling you've received, Ephesians 4, 1, with all humility. In other words, as you walk with God, do it in humility and gentleness and patience. Accept one another in love. Diligently keep the diligently. In other words, let your number one aim have unity of the spirit with the peace that binds us. And he talks about that global view of the church. There's one body, one spirit. You're called to one hope at your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And one God and Father of all, and here's that global view, he's above all, God's through all, and he's in all. In verse 7, as far as we got last week, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Now, please hear me one more time because this is foundational. There's always somebody in the church that says, I just don't think I have anything to offer. I, don't th- I hear you talk about gifts. I, I don't even know what mine is. I don't think I got one. Well, you're going to have to take it up with God because it says here, verse 7, it was grace was given to each one of us. So, so who does that leave out if you use the word each one? Nobody. So in the body of Christ, each one of us has a gift according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. So in other words, as he's giving gifts, his measure was limitless. His measure was for all that believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So, so here's the question. The only thing that gets you counted out of God's grace is your own unbelief, your own, un- your own rebellion against God. So, so what keeps you from experiencing the gift of, his, uh, the, the, the gift of the Spirit? Your own rejection saying, I don't want that gift. I don't want to use that. I don't want to be that involved. I, I just want to go to church when it's convenient. I, I really don't have any purpose. I don't want to serve. I, I just want to come. I don't want any accountability. Well, maybe you ought to read the book. Because the Bible says he gave to each one gifts. And, and then he uses a picture, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. Because for many, they say, what in the world does that mean? Why is it thrown in there? When he ascended on high in verse 8. He took prisoners into captivity and he gave gifts to people. Another translation says he took captivity captive. Now those are both proper interpretations, but they mean different things. One is he took prisoners captive. Secondly, he took captivity captive. Verse 9. And what does he ascended in that illustration, verse 8? 
What does he ascended mean except that he must have descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And by the way, as he departed, he not only gave gifts to each one, he gave gifts to his church. He personally gave some gifted people, some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastors, teachers, for the training of the saints. So why do we have gifted people and spiritual gifts? To train the saints in the work of the ministry. Well, what is that supposed to do? It builds up the body of Christ. Well, how long have we got to do with that? Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing to maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. The Bible says God himself loved us enough to send his son. The son loved us enough to come live among us, and that would be something else. If, if the president were to go live in the, the slums of New York City, Detroit, Chicago, Washington, D.C., if he were to say, I'm going to take up residence for the next 90 days and live in one of the, one of the poorest apartments in the city, in the inner city, one of the major cities, everybody say, he, he's not serious, is he? Well, he can't, he can't, somebody shoot him, he may get nine, but he can't live in there. You know what Jesus did? He took residence in the ghetto. He came to live among us in a dusty, pitiful part of time in a little old dusty out of the way place called Israel. And at the time it was pretty, pretty, pretty primitive by our standards, but God became flesh and he dwelt among us in the poorest of the poor and he became poor like us so that we might be made rich like him, and I don't mean in material wealth, we might inherit the kingdom. But here's what the Bible says. We're the church of Jesus Christ. That means we've been saved by him. We've been transformed by him. We've been filled up with his spirit. We have our name written in his book. He's prepared a place for us. He's given us gifts on the earth so we can serve him. He's given us the Holy Spirit to energize us to use them. He's sealed us in the day of redemption. He takes us by the hand, it says, and leads us in paths of righteousness. He's given his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He's given us the body of Christ to hold us accountable and have fellowship. He's shared with us ministry opportunities so we can reveal the love of Christ to people who wouldn't know him any other way. And one day soon, the heaven's going to open and he's going to take us home. Now, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's a good deal. And that's who he is. And that's what he came to do. So what we realize is if that's the case, he says, when I'm asking you to do all that, would you do it in unity? Now, hear me. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. We, we've got this vision. Unity means we're all in lockstep. We don't disagree on anything. We're all absolutely exactly alike. We think alike, talk alike, say alike, talk, uh, uh, believe alike. We have, no, we have no, no differences whatsoever. That's not called unity. That's called robotic. What, what's the greatest strength of a church? Diversity. What's the greatest strength of a nation? We've forgotten what united means. We think that if we're diverse, then we got to fight till somebody wins. God help us, then we're in real trouble for our future. We didn't ever agree on anything, but we agreed we want to be a free people. Opportunity to provide for our family with as little government intrusion as possible. And if the government does anything, defend us from foreign enemies and create an infrastructure so we can flourish. But today we think, well, we're not, we'll never be together. Well, we never were. But we were a united states around a principle of freedom. What is a church going to be? You think we all agree alike? How long does your Sunday school have discussions over some critical point? For an hour. Why? Well, now he thinks this and she thinks, well, I don't agree with that. Well, you don't have to agree with it. What makes a church strong? 
Iron sharpening, iron sharpening, iron. And what's the ultimate fil filter? Well, we're going to vote it. What do y'all think this means? Please don't do that. You already have the guide. Thus saith the Lord. So when you come to that point, you say we're not all in agreement, then come back together. And here's what, here's what it says we're to be. We're to be one body with God as our Father, following Him, gifted, gifted by God's grace, and pursuing unity. Now, I, one other word on this word gift, and we've got to move on. The word gift is a great word. It means to favor somebody. But this particular word comes from where you 415 times in the New Testament. Here's the picture. There's certain people in my lifetime that brought me a gift, and it meant the world to me because they didn't have it to give. At birthday or Christmas or something, they'd give me a gift, and I think, my soul, I, I, I'm very grateful, but you shouldn't, I literally should not have done that. There are other people that at Christmas season can give many gifts because they have much to give from. And by the way, whatever they give doesn't deplete the supply. They've got plenty more where that came from. This is the picture of somebody who has no limit on his supply. And so when he gives his children, he doesn't say, well, now we, we, we got to cut back on the salvations because I don't have any more gifts for a little while. I can't give out any more salvation. I, I don't have any more freebies to eternal life. We, we don't have any more residences prepared. We're going to have to cut back now. No. The picture here is one who favors us from a limitless supply of grace and goodness and gifts because he has more than we can ever fathom. It's a picture of somebody who loves to pour out favor. He loves to love on his children. He loves to give good gifts to his children. Why? Not so they'll be spoiled, but so they're, Ill, they're never ill-equipped what he wants them to do. The Bible says we got gifts as he apportioned. Did you see in verse 7? Grace was given to each one according to the measure. Uh, some translations say, as Christ apportioned it. Now, why is that important? You and I know people who say, well, now I'm going to go over here because they're going to teach us how to have this gift. Most often it's tongues. We're going to go over here, and, and this church teaches. I like that. They're going to teach us how to speak in tongues. Well, I got a problem. I got a lot of problems with one of them I got. If God gives the gifts to whom he wills and apportions them as it pleases him, who am I to tell God, this is the gift I want? Wouldn't you think it rude of me? I don't even have to ask. If starting December the 1st, I started writing letters to every one of you's members, say, I'm your pastor, and let me tell you what I'd like you to get me for Christmas. How many of you ought to become Methodist? You'd say, that's very rude of him. I wasn't even going to get him anything. Now I know I'm not going to get him anything. Would you think it rude if I told you, not only I expect a gift, but I'm telling you what kind of gift I want to have? Who do we think we are? The Bible says he gives as he apportions gifts. Why? He knows what his body needs, and he gifts the people to fill the positions of service that are needed in his body, in the community, to fulfill the will of God for eternity. So, so who are we to say, I got to stay on my knees till you give me this gift? Yeah, never had a child that say, I'm not going to my room till you give me a cookie. How did that work for them? Are any of them walking today? Who do we think we are? The Bible says we, we have no room to brag over the gift we got. He gave it to us. And we don't have any room to complain because if he gave it to us, he must be ready for us to use it. So, so, so since all God's children are gifted, we've got to ask one question. Why is every church not absolutely exploding? 
with growth. There's an old saying, it's not biblical, could have been, but it's not biblical. It says, an organization is no stronger than its weakest what? Link. What does it take to break a chain? Just one weak link. What keeps a church from moving together in unity? Well, let's see, there's a weak link here, and you pulled over there, and that one fell apart, and that one dropped out, and that one said, I'm not going to serve, that one said, don't ask us to do anything, and suddenly you pull a chain, you got three links together and four links together, but there's not the whole chain pulling. Why, why don't we use our gifts? Well, I think sometimes because we don't realize what they cost, we talked about this last week. If I gave you a gift and I said the only way you can enjoy it fully is to appreciate how much it costs, and I told you how much it had been spent on that gift, and if it was excessive, you'd say, Brother Nick, I don't even want to use that. I, I'm going to put it up here on this shelf, and we're going to lock the, lock the cabinet it's in, and I, I'm going to cherish that. Well, that's what we could do, but that's about what God gave us a costly gift. If you get a gift and all you do is put it on a shelf, is it useful? The Bible says what he gave to us cost him his blood. He died for the body so he could give gifts to his children for the function of the kingdom. So when we get a gift, we first of all say thank you because I realize had Christ not died on the cross and had he not gone away when the disciples said, please don't leave us, he said, I got to go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to bring you gifts. And when he does that, he's going to empower you, the filling of the Spirit, so he can use those gifts the ministry of the kingdom be global. Sometimes we don't use our gifts because we don't realize what it costs. Secondly, I don't think this is always true in the Baptist church, but sometimes it is. Sometimes we cherish the gift and we forget the giver. Well, look what I've got. If you are spiritual, if you are, if you are a deeper lifer like me, if you had the prayer life I have, you, in all humility, I, I'm, just, I'm just really tremendously deep. Doesn't that sound lovely? You don't know anybody brags over their gift more than the giver, do you? Do you? The Bible says sometimes we don't do what God wants to do with a gift because we're not building up the body with it. We're building up our ego with it. I'm sorry, didn't the Bible say he gives us gifts for the unity body, for the minister, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry? What are you doing with your gift? You just put it on a shelf like the guy that buried the talent. I'm afraid I'd mess it up, so I just hid mine. And you expect him to say, well done. Well, well, I bragged on my gift. Now, I told everybody what a good person I am. And the gift I've got is marvelous, and I'm just going so deep with God. And who are you bringing with you into the kingdom? Why did God give us gifts? third reason we don't use them sometimes is we use the gift for the wrong ends. We don't use them as God intended. We use them to start our own little group over here. And we're so much more spiritual than everybody else. We don't really need the church anymore. We've just got our little gifted group. Well, that's global, isn't it? Sadly, too often he gave us gifts. We didn't use them. Well, look at this real quickly. Why, why did he give us gifts? Look at verse 8. Because some say, I don't know what this means. It's taken from Psalm 68. Actually, it's the Targums interpretation. Now Targum was written in Aramaic when the Jews were sent into Assyria and Babylon. When they were gone for so long obviously the Jewish Hebrew was not used in the street. It was only used in worship services and over time it ceased to be used there because as your children grew up in schools and they didn't go to Jewish schools they went to Babylonian schools. That's happened in America. 
that's happened in the, the <laughs> I better stay on topic. But, but the sad thing is what happens is you pollute, and, and, and forgive me, you vulgarize what you believe because another system is teaching your children. And so as the Jews lost the use of Hebrew, the only time they heard Hebrew is at home before long, you've raised boys and girls say, what is this stuff we speak at home? We're learning Assyrian. We, we speak Babylonian. We, we're, we're, we're Babylonians. No, you're Jewish. Well, I might as well be Babylonian. Go to Babylonian schools, do, market, do work in the marketplace of Babylon. My, t- my senior, my uh, teenage jobs for Babylonian boss. And so what they developed was Assyrian language had a, uh, began to c- c- become Aramaic. And Targum is the Jewish belief in Aramaic language. And so in Aramaic, Psalm 68 comes out something like this. He ascended on high, took prisoners into captivity, and gave gifts to people. Now, what does that mean? Short version, here it is. A king back then, when you'd go out and your general or the king himself most often would go into battle, when you licked the enemy, when he was whipped, two or three things happened. First of all, you took the king and the prince and his family, and they were the first to get into bondage. Why? We're going to silence you because your kingdom's over. You're done. Secondly, typically in times of difficulty, if one nation is a captive of another nation or one army has had prisoners of war taken, the, the, the liberate army goes, and the first thing they do is set the captives free. Jesus said that's why the Son of Man would come to set the captives free. Who's holding you in bondage? Our greatest nemesis, Satan. So the Bible says the general goes in and he first captures the other king. When Christ came, he defeated the king of darkness called Satan. Secondly, he set and made possible for all those held captive in sin to go free because the power of Christ is stronger than the power of the enemy. Light always conquers darkness. So he set captivity free, but then he took captive all the host of hell. Do you remember when Jesus met the demons in Gadara? They were terrified and said, have you come to torment us before our time? They're not shocked he came to torment them. They said, is our time, is, is class already over? We thought we'd have a few more eons to create terror. Have you come to, 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 to destroy us before our time? What do demons know is going to happen when Christ comes in all of his splendor? Guess what? They're going to, everyone wind up in the lake of fire forever. Now, he was merciful that day. He put them in a lake of water called the Sea of Galilee, and he ran a bunch of pigs off into the sea. So, so what happens when a general comes? He, 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 he captures the king. He, sets, he, he captures the royal family. He takes all the prisoners of war of the, of, the, uh, of the army of that king. He sets his prisoners of war free, and then he gathers all the, the wealth of the king in his treasure room and he takes it back and that's how come certain kings had so much wealth they were good in battle and they just kept bringing it home but here's the picture psalm says he ascended have you ever been to jerusalem you can't go to jerusalem except one way because it's in the mountains every time in scripture you read they went up to jerusalem it wasn't a spiritual ascent it's literal It's in the mountains. You cannot go to Jerusalem if you don't want to go up to Jerusalem. So it says in Psalm 68, he ascended 
and he gave gifts. He took captivity captive, or he took captives. Either one's good. If he took captivity captive, it means he took those that were in bondage and set them free. He took captivity into his captivity. So now the gates are open and those who are held are free. Or he took captive all the demons of hell and now they're under his heel. But there's something else that says, and he gave gifts. He gave gifts. Now here's Christ the King. He whipped Satan. And by the way, for those of you that say, when Jesus died on the cross, all of hell cheered. No, they did not. Why do you think they tried to kill him as a baby? Why do you think they wanted to kill him on the Sea of Galilee? Why do you think so many times they were after him and wanting to destroy him? Why do you think Satan said, throw yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple? He wasn't eager about God saving him. He said, maybe he'll look the other way and you'll die because you rebelled against God. Wages of sin, you know, is death. Why do you want to kill him? Because they knew if he ever gets to the cross and he pays the penalty of sin and he dies on the cross, we've had it. The Bible says the day he died and went in the tomb, there was a quiet, the Bible says, book of Revelation says before all the last judgment comes, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. I've never been in a storm like a tornado, but I've heard right before the tornado hits, it gets dead still. When Jesus died on the cross, every demon of hell went mute. They thought, oh no. And the Bible says he took captivity captive. He entered into the grave. But while he was dead in spirit, we're going to read this in a minute. While he was dead in body, he was alive in spirit. And he preached to those in prison. And as he ascended, he gave gifts to his people. What does a returning king do? He's got the king captive and the prince He's got the people of court captive. He, he's got the former armies captive. He set free his soldiers that were held captive. And back here's the liberating army. It's just like a Christmas parade. You ever been to a parade? We don't give great gifts now. What do we throw out? Tootsie Rolls. And people stand in line to get them. That amazes me. I'll buy you a pack. It's just really hurting. We'll stand up there for hours for a lollipop. Depraved people we are. What did the king give? He had jewelry. And he had, art, he had uh, uh, goblets. And he had silverware and perhaps some gold. And so what did he do? He didn't throw away the best stuff. But if you got nothing and you were to get a silver chalice or you were to get an earring, woo! And the Bible says the people lined up to praise their victorious general and he's giving gifts to the people and they go all home and all go home and say, did you see our king's victorious? Did you see that other king? He knows he's in trouble. Did you see all our captives? All our husbands and fathers have been held captive. They're coming home and all that. I got me a set of gold earrings. You think the people were happy? When our king died on the cross and came alive from the grave, every demon in hell shuddered. And the Bible says as he ascended, as he ascended, having taken those in captivity and set them free, who is in that group? 
every person that ever trusted Jesus Christ as Lord. Free at last, free at last. Praise Jesus Christ, I'm free at last. And then what does he do? I'm going to give you the gift of helps. And I'm going to give some the gift of healing. And I'm going to give some the ability to speak in languages so you can take the gospel. And I'm going to give some the ability of administration. And I'm going to give some other gifts so that the body of Christ can be built up for the work of the ministry. Well, that's that picture. He ascended on high. And then there's those that say, well, what about verse 9 when it says, he who ascended means he descended to the lowest parts of the earth. Well, I'm glad you asked. Do you know in the Old Testament that the lowest parts of the earth mean three things? The earth, the womb, and the tomb. Well, I'm glad you asked because where did Jesus come? He became flesh and dwelt among us where? On earth. How did he enter? Through the womb of a virgin named Mary. And where was he buried? In a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The emphasis is not on where he went as how far he was willing to come down. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be counted equal with God, but he humbled himself. He humbled himself and came in the form of a servant in the likeness of man. You know why that doesn't mean anything to us? It will when we see the splendor of heaven and the power of the king. I can't explain how he could do that, but he did that. And some of you say, well, preacher, what about 1 Peter 3? I'm glad you asked. Here's what it says. 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, and that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm. Now look at that. He was put to death in the flesh where? On the cross. But he was alive. He was made alive in the spirit in the spiritual realm, in verse 19, and in that alive state, during those days, his body was in the tomb. According to Peter, in that state, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, what does that mean? Just what it says. I don't think he entered hell. We have denominations. That means he went to hell because they went to the lowest places. The lowest place he was there when he arrived here. This is the ghetto. When you live in heaven, you've suffered when you come here. Lowest place is the womb of a woman. Lowest place is a tomb of a dead man. But the Bible says when he, when he was alive in the spirit but dead in the body, he, he went to Sheol. What is that? The place of the dead. And you've got to shift gears to Old Testament. But if you don't think like a Jewish person in the Old Testament, this is going to fly right over your noggin. Jews believe there was a place called Sheol. It was a place of the dead. And they believe it was split half in two. They believe part of it was paradise, where those who believed in God, a one God, one God person, a Jew who honored the law, believed in faith, someday Messiah is going to come. When they died, they were held in a place called paradise, waiting for the delivery of the Messiah. On the other side of the wall were people who were forever condemned in Sheol to be forever separated from God. It says Christ, when he went, he went to the, he went to preach to those held in prison. What is it that makes us weep when a husband, wife, child, grandchild, friend dies? 
because everything in us would love to come by that casket and say, please get out of there. I just can't stand the thoughts of life going forward without you in it. Please get out of there and come with me. Why? Death holds them away from us. To be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord, but that doesn't make it accessible to me yet. So what did Christ do? He went to announce to all those held in death, not to give a second chance to those who are lost. It's important man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. But what had those Old Testament saints been looking forward to? The coming of the Messiah. And the feeling is, did they miss it? They died before he came. Did they miss it? Did they, did they not know there's a Messiah? Are they held in the grave and the bondage of death wondering, was I lied to? Is there, is there no God? Is, is Job's confession false when he said, I, I know my Redeemer lives? The Bible says when Christ's body was in the tomb, he went to preach to those held in Sheol in a place awaiting the coming of the king. And when he showed up with the entourage of his angels, I believe he preached the Christmas message, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Can you hear Jesus, the Son of God, now nail-pierced, spear-pierced, brow-pierced, standing as the victorious, triumphant king, and every demon of hell said, how did he do that? We saw him die. Well, they tried to kill the wrong person. You can't destroy the Lord of life. And when he stood victorious, he preached to those saying, is there Messiah? I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people unto you today is risen Christ the King. That's enough to want you to make you want to sing the hallelujah chorus, isn't it? Well, in Baptist church, at least hum it in unison, you know. But, but think about it. So suddenly all that history is made true. Well, very quickly, I didn't mean to take that long, but that gets me excited. Verse 10, the one who descended is the one, verse 10, the one who descended is the one who ascended, and that goes right back up to the illustration, verse 8, he ascended on high. The one who ascended is far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what happened when, when the world says, we want to put you over here in this stone and roll this, so you stay in there. What's the world saying today? We don't want you in a public square. We don't want you in our government. We sure don't want you in telling us what we ought to do in marriage. We don't want you in gender identity. We don't want you in creation. We don't want you. Boy, are they even going to be in for a shock. <laughs> Y'all listening to any of this? One of these days, the heaven's going to rupture and the trumpet sounds so loud. Those who have earplugs are going to hear it. And the Bible says those who are his are going to be taken home. And by the way, he's listening to all this say, we don't want you. They'll be standing right there eyeball to eyeball one day. Could I have a second chance? Depart from it. I don't know who you are. Did y'all read the book? What does he ascended, verse 9, mean? Except he went to the lowest parts of the earth. Verse 10, the one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens. He might fill everything. And he personally, don't you like that? He didn't send out an envoy. Go get those people some gifts and try to make them happy. He personally, don't you like that? He personally, it's his body, the church. 
He wanted to be sure the body was well equipped. He personally gave gifted people. Now, real quickly, I want to whistle through this because time has gone. I got too carried away on the illustration. I got to get through this day. We got, we got all Ephesians to finish, and I, I'm going to retire soon, so I got to hurry. <sighs> if y'all to listen faster, this would go quicker. I, I'm just saying. But, but look at this. Look, look, at, look at what he says right here. The one who descended, verse 11, he personally gave some apostles, prophecies. Now, I, I'm not going to dig a trench and die in this one. But, but truly, there, there are groups today that have who they call it. This is our apostle elder or somebody. This apostle bishop. So this is our apostle John Doe. Oh, okay, they've taken a biblical name and made it a church title. But biblically, they aren't any apostles. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, and you can look there if you want to, Acts 1, 21 and 22, when Judas had died, they need to secure another one to take his place. And there were two criterion to be a true apostle. Here's what it says in Acts 1, 21, 22. They said, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. How many apostles would that qualify today to be a true apostle? He had to be with us the whole time that Jesus was living among us, beginning with John's baptism, the time Jesus was taken up from us, and for one of these must become for one of these men must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Two things. He has to have heard and known Christ's teachings, and he has to have been a witness of the resurrection. How many people today would qualify as a true biblical apostle? None. In fact, when Paul was called, what did he say of himself? I was called out of due time, not in the right chronology. I didn't walk with Christ. But for 14 years, before I ever took my first church, I was alone with him, and he taught me how thoroughly. He said on the night when our Lord was betrayed, here's how he broke the bread, and he got it exactly right, and he never talked to one of the other apostles. Paul said, I, I spent time with him, though I didn't walk with him. He prepared me to be an apostle. And he says, I am witness to the resurrection, Hallelujah, because on the road to Damascus, when that blinding light hit him in the face, and he said, Saul, why do you persecute me? He called him by name, Lord, who are you? Did he see him? Oh, my. And by the way, it says in 2 Corinthians 12, he's called him to the third heaven. So these apostles were men uniquely gifted by Christ. Why? There wasn't a church manual. There wasn't a church constitution. Scriptures, New Testament, not yet been written. So how do you know what the body of Christ is supposed to be? God gifted the 11 remaining men and Mattathias that they elected, along with Paul the apostle. And by the way, others were called apostles like Barnabas, Titus at different times. And they went to the church, gifted by Christ, to say, don't do that, do this. Why? Our master said. But listen, the gift of apostle ceased. Why? When the New Testament was written, we had the record. We had the guidebook. We had the word of God. Think with me. The next one mentioned, I think, is prophet. Prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament are those who could tell the Word of God without any other supporting text. 
When they preached, they didn't say, now it says in the book of Genesis, they say, thus saith the Lord, and everybody knew that was the source. When they preached, it was power and authority. It was very clearly God's will for God's people, and most often it was repent and turn back. And they knew in their sin what he was telling was true. They hated prophets, many times killed them, but they knew they had a word from God. Just as today we hear the truth, we just don't plan to do the truth. We resent anybody correcting us and telling us what you're doing is a dead-end street that leads to death. Don't tell me that, okay? You're going to die. But you'll remember that somebody cared enough to stand in the way on your quick road to destruction to say, bridge is out. Stop. Move before I run over you. Old Testament stuff. Now let me tell you, sometimes today people say, well, now I, I just believe there's still, I, I still believe they're prophets. Well, occasionally a man will rise up and he has a very excellent word from God. I don't deny that. And sometimes pastors, if they pray and seek God's face, can come with a regular word from God. But the Old Testament prophets ceased. How do we know? From the days of Malachi until the angel's appearance at shepherd's fields in Bethlehem of Judea, 400 years, not one word from God. If we had that in America, we were founded, or at least we look back to, not 1776, though that's the day. We remember pilgrims in 1620. If this were the Old Testament era, the last prophet would have been at Plymouth Plantation and Jesus would have come in 1920. That's how long that would have been. The Bible says there are prophets who declare, thus saith the Lord, apostles who could say to the church, this is what God wants you to do. So he says, Here, here's how you set up a church to the apostles. The prophets will make sure you don't go to the right or the left, but you stay in the path of righteousness. And he said he gives evangelists, and you know who those are. From time to time, we've had different evangelists. Jay Louder, we've had several times, and, and I love Jay. He's the most amazing individual. He can stand up and say, good morning, and y'all start for the aisle. I, I don't know how that happens. But, but there's just certain people that God gives it. And when they share a principle and share a text, and then they say, now, I know you need to come. Some have been sitting in the church for years under Nick Garland, and an evangelist comes, and you hear him because that's his gift. We watched Billy Graham for years. He, he only had one text, John 3.16. He just preached it really good. And for all those years, he preached John 3.16. You know, he'd say, now, in a moment, we're going to invite you to come. You know, you know that voice, North Carolinian to the core. The buses will wait, and we've got those who are ready to visit with you. You come tonight. Some of you need to come right now. Get up from where you are. Boy, here they'd come. And, and when, when Franklin Graham came to the baseball stadium here in Tulsa a number of years ago, I got to be on the counseling committee. And that's the most amazing thing when you're standing there in the altar of that stadium. And Franklin Graham would give the invitation, and I mean, it looked like somebody, a dam had broken, and people just started coming. And you're standing in the harvest. God gives to his body apostles, say, here's how you ought to operate. He gives to the body prophets to say this, thus saith the Lord. He gives evangelists to tell you the gospel and see people saved. And then he gives folks like me. And it's not pastors and teachers, it's really a hyphenated word, pastor teachers. 
word pastor means shepherd. The Bible says shepherds are supposed to shepherd the sheep of God and teachers are supposed to teach the children of God what they need for the work of the ministry. Sadly, through the years, sometimes pastors, pastors are not what God intended. The days of Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 10, 21, the shepherds, meaning the pastors, the shepherds of my people have become stupid. Jeremiah 10, 21, they no longer seek the Lord, therefore they have not prospered and their flocks are scattered. Ezekiel 34 says they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and my sheep became food for every beast of the field because they were scattered. In 1 Kings 22, he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. That's the quote Jesus made when he stood and he saw the multitudes coming in Matthew chapter, or Matthew chapter 9. He saw all these people coming and it says he wept because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. A shepherd's supposed to take care of the sheep, defend the sheep, guard the sheep, sometimes call the sheep in in intensive care, sometimes rebuke the sheep, sometimes shear the sheep. Whatever's required is going to be called a shepherd and a teacher is to say, now, we're going to take this step by step because you're going to be on the front lines and you need to know this and you need to understand this about Scripture. So the role of a shepherd is not just to keep us together but make sure each one of us get a steady diet of what's needed from the Word of God. And then... Very quickly, the Bible says he does this for the purpose, I like this, to prepare God's people for the works of service to build up the body of Christ. Here it is. You know what the word works is? Ergon. You say, well, that didn't do anything for me. Well, let's try this. E-R-G, if we had E-N-E-R-G-Y, energy, what do we get? Energy. The Bible says the work of the kingdom is energized by God, but taught by the shepherds, preached and held together by the pastors, taught the gospel by the evangelists, set in motion by the apostles being the early referees, and the prophets always saying, thus saith the Lord. So the people say, we get it. So we've been energized for the work of the kingdom. And listen to this. You know what the work of service is? Diakonoi. Dia means through. Konos means dust. It's the word deacon. In in scripture, a deacon is one who when he gets the call to service. Y'all ever watch uh, 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 Wile E. Coyote? Please tell me you did. This works better if you've seen it. Six of you have. That's great. Explain this in Sunday school to all you others that didn't grow up with culture. Wiley Cody was always trying to catch very good class Roadrunner. And when Roadrunner had come by, Wiley was all set up with his latest thing from Acme. He's going to get him today, you know. And how did Roadrunner come by? He would see Wiley Coyote, and then all of a sudden, a cartoonist just made a blur, a blur with his feet, and it and you just see this cloud of dust. That's deacon. Y'all look skeptical. That's the word. I've gotten word of a need. I've gotten word from the Lord, and I'm hurrying so quickly to do it, my feet are a blur, and all you're going to see is dust where I was. The Bible says we're to be energized. That's the word. We're to be, God's people are to be taught and prepared for the work, the energizing work of service, diakonoi, for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And then real quickly, and i got to quit, 
Look at verse 13 real quick. What's the goal? He wants us to reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of God's Son, growing to be a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now, what's the goal? I want you to be mature. I want you to grow in knowledge. I want you to be united. And by the way, I want you to have something you can't have. Paul's a master of superlatives. He says in chapter 2, verse 7 of Ephesians, we are go after the immeasurable riches of his grace. In chapter 3, verse 8, we've got the incalculable riches of Messiah. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says we have the multifaceted wisdom of God. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says, I want you to know the love that surpasses knowledge. And in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I want you to have, grow into the mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. How, how are we doing? You know when you're a little child and your mama put a mark on the wall? and say, well, you're up to four feet. A few weeks later, she'd, a few months later, she'd mark it again. You've gone four two. You, you know what the measure is? Immeasurable. You know what the standard is? One who's perfect. You know what our ultimate goal is? To be like the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I don't think I have to ask how we're doing. We need a whole lot of growing going on. The Bible says we need Christ. Well, I got to quit, but I got to just share one other thing. And if I make you mad late, saints, go show me mercy, would you? I don't know this song, but I, I found it. It's an old hymn, as you can tell us. How, we used to have hymn books. Y'all remember those in church? I, I knew you wouldn't, but we used to. We'd sing songs out of hymn books. And I found one that I've never sung, never heard sung. But I was looking at one that described the body of Christ. I, I like this one. By the way, the third verse I'm going to read was written by John Newton. Y'all remember John Newton? Amazing Grace John Newton wrote the third verse. Here's the first verse written by somebody else. God, the Father of your people, you have called us to be one. Grant us peace to walk together in the joy of Christ, your Son. Challenged by your word and spirit, blessed with gifts from heaven above, as one body we will serve you and bear witness to your love. Listen to this one by John Newton, third verse. May the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon us from above, may we now remain in union with each other and with the Lord and possess in sweet communion joys that earth cannot afford. Welcome to the body of Jesus Christ. Love before the foundation of the world, save through the death and burial of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, alive forevermore, gifted for the work of the kingdom on earth and soon to be out of here to go to be with our heavenly father how long forever and ever and ever and ever amen stand with me would you lord it's good today just to remember these marvelous verses what a great picture of the church of jesus christ you didn't leave it to guesswork and you didn't leave it to say well just do the best you can you gifted us, you've loved us, you transformed us, you've guided us with your spirit, you energize us for the work of the ministry, you cause us to have such an urgency, we create dust just getting point A to point B trying to get the work done. Thank you. I pray today for your body. Maybe someone here needs to make a commitment to Christ of salvation. 
if so, bring them. Maybe someone here says, Brother Nick, I just want to come and spend some moment in prayer and thank God for his goodness. Or I need to confess, I've not been using my giftedness and I, I want to renew my walk with Christ. Well, there are prayer benches here, kneeling benches here for you to do that if you want to come. There may be other decisions you need to make in a moment. Pastors will be at the front. Rocky's here. Visit with ladies. It's I'd prefer to talk to a lady. Rocky is our women's ministry director, and she is a lady. Her name's Rocky. She's a lady, and she'll be glad to visit with you as a lady if you'd like to talk to her. She'll be here in the altar. Whatever God tells you to do, as you reflect on all he's done for you, you come. Father, thank you for this rich study of the church of Jesus Christ from the book of Ephesians. Help us to walk in gratitude with Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing. You come as the Lord directs. Won't you do it? Let's sing together. <laughs>